Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. We're recording live again at Downtown Uncorked in historic Downtown Bryan. It's taken me two seasons, but I can say it all in one breath. I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy that you've remembered that Downtown Bryan is historic, and we're very happy to be in historic Downtown Bryan. I thought you'd be proud. So we're doing our last recording of the year, both of the semester and of the year. Uh, we have uh, ambassador calendar Ray. year, not academic. Not year. academic year, but not everyone works on an academic year like us. They 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 know end of the year is a calendar year. Fair Maybe. enough. <laughs> um, and we're lucky enough to have former ambassador Larry Napper, who's a professor at the Bush School, with us. Um, so we'll jump into meeting him and chatting with him in just a moment. Um, a couple things to keep in mind. Um, we'll, again, we'll be done with uh, recording for this year. Uh, we have a bunch lined up for you in the spring. So maybe some surprises, some different ways of sharing our podcast with you. So be on the lookout for that in the spring, and we'll continue the fun then. Can we preview the, uh, the first guests in the spring? Go right ahead. Well, we're going to have the Dean of the Bush School, Mark Welsh, and the Senior Associate Dean of the Bush School, Frank Ashley, as our first guests in mid-January. Mm -hmm. In mid-January. So they'll, they'll get us rolling in January, and then we'll be trying to do about two a month and we have might have a couple more things up our sleeves as we get going in the spring and and given the fact that we have such a distinguished guest today we might have get a lot more downloads than we usually do so you should introduce yourself as the host oh me i am yeah. justin bullock i'm the assistant professor at the bush school of government and public service and i'm still your host and i'm gregory gauze i'm the co-host of this podcast <laughs> and i'm the head of the international affairs department which is good because we're going to be talking about international affairs today. And as the audience knows, I know little to nothing about international affairs. But you're enthusiastic about it, so I that counts for a lot. And I know a lot more now after being your co-host for two years. Two years. And co-colleague for, this is year six for me. Year six for me, too, because you remember you and I came in the same time. That's right. All right, we're taking up a lot of the air. Right. How about we uh, introduce our guest, Greg? Ambassador Larry Knapper is a professor of the practice of international affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service uh, and uh, a longtime American uh, uh, Foreign Service officer, uh, U.S. Ambassador to Latvia and Kazakhstan, uh, old Russia hand in the State Department, and uh, we are incredibly fortunate to have him at the Bush School. So Larry, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come down and uncork with you guys. So, well, yeah, so here I am, and uh, it only took you a couple of years to get me here. Well, you know, right. we, uh, we saved we saved the best for last. We wanted to make sure we had the podcast a well-oiled machine yeah. before before we had you on. Well, I appreciate that very much, and and uh, it is true that I spend a lot of a lot of my uh, foreign service career uh, working on the issues of Russia and Ukraine. I'll tell you a story about that when I first got here to the Bush School, and they said, well, what do you think you can do you know, for us? And I said, well, uh, I think I could probably teach a, a course or two on, on diplomacy and, the, you know, the dark arts of that, and, uh, and I could probably teach a course on, uh, on Russia and global politics. Whereupon people around the table started looking at each, this was 2005, 2004 or 5, looking around at each other and saying, well, uh, you know, do we really do we really think we need a course on uh, on on Russia and yesterday yes, yesterday's news? <laughs> yes, uh, isn't isn't Russia on the junk heap of history and uh, and this is an area of, of which uh, you know uh, 
has gone uh, into the obscurity which it so richly deserves and from which it shall never uh, reemerge. And, and uh, nobody, nobody gives a damn about it. So why do we think students are going to be interested in this? And, and, uh, uh, well, suffice it to say, I don't get that question anymore. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> uh, the, uh, Have you sent a basket of fruit to Mr. Putin? Yes, right. Well, <laughs> he, certainly, he certainly deserves it. Uh, yeah. This also came out in the, you know, this is part of the o Obama and Romney campaign, right? O Romney was just kind of, uh, Obama was skewering Romney well, saying, Because you know, he said Russia was the biggest it's a, geopolitical it, It's threat. a matter to, of endless astonishment to me that, uh, that the last presidential uh, election uh, turned around uh, the whole debate of who was the puppet of yeah, Vladimir, yeah, yeah. which right, one right, was the right. puppet of Vladimir Putin, and, and now uh, we are uh, we are engaged in uh, in yet another uh, political imbriglio, which has uh, tied up our own political system with regard to uh, to that part of the world. And so, as I, as I said a minute ago, I don't get that question anymore. Yep, I can imagine that. And I do have I do have student interest in my class, and and uh, and uh, so we. Uh, we continue our our uh, our study of the of uh, Russia, Ukraine, that part of the world at the Bush School. So the rise of uh, Putin's influence has been job security for you. Well, he didn't even say that. Yeah, you <laughs> can say that. Yeah. So, Larry, why don't we uh, dive right in? Uh, we're not going to talk about impeachment today. Thank you very much. Justin I and I that. talk. We talk about impeachment a lot. And the three of us have actually talked about impeachment together already. That is true. So, so. Yes, uh, my dear wife won't even listen to anything on the radio about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Who can blame her? Right. Who can blame her? But maybe if we, we work backwards for listeners, it might be a good way to yeah. understand how Ukraine and the Ukrainian issue got involved in American politics. So if maybe you can start with the famous phone call in Zelensky well, and who Zelensky is, and we can work backwards. If you back don't mind, I'll, I'll start back a little bit okay. further than that. Uh, because... Uh, we should spend a few minutes on uh, on Zelensky and the, and the phenomenon of the current U Ukrainian uh, president Volodymyr Zelensky. So uh, Ukraine Ukraine has been uh, really since its inception as an independent country or its re resumption of independence, however you want to say that, and it can be said in both ways. Uh, in 1991. Uh, a, a troubled and divided place, uh, in, and uh, that those divisions uh, deepened uh, after 2004, and when there was a disputed election between uh, a, a candidate that uh, who uh, was perceived as being close to close to Putin, close to Russia, and then a set of candidates on the other side uh, uh, in the presidential election, a presidential candidate and his supporters who who uh, were seen to be more inclined uh, to, and were more inclined uh, toward the West, toward an opening to NATO and the European Union and so on. Well, that set off uh, a, a very long period of the, of the deepest imaginable divisions in Ukrainian politics, uh, where uh, there were a set of contested elections, hotly contested elections over the next decade and a half, uh, and, Honest elections? Uh, by Mostly? The by the standards of the region, yes. Yeah. In other words, uh, Ukraine uh, proved that it could conduct a mostly free and fair election, again, given the standards of the region, uh, and did so on several occasions. 
problem was these elections never decided anything, right? Uh, because like, like our own elections, and some of this will not sound unfamiliar, uh, they are, were incredibly divisive, very closely contested, uh, and divided between, if you want to call it, a, red, a very bright, bright red-blue division. You could almost draw a line north and south uh, through the middle of the country, and to the east of that line would be supporters of the, of the more pro-Russian line, and to the west of that would be, and, and, and right down that line you could almost contest it. Right. And, that, and that line divides linguistically right over, uh, or? Uh, linguistic, cultural, yes. Okay. So, so the folks on the western side of that line will, will be more likely to speak Ukrainian, be members of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, These and the people are, and, on the and, east and, of the and, line more likely to speak Russian. And, saw, and, and, and would, see, would be more likely to see their cultural lodestone in the west, to, to try to watch on, western, on, western television. On the western right. side of that line. And on the other side would be uh, predominantly Russian-speaking areas and, and culturally Russian and, and would, you know, watch Moscow TV. And, so, so why so, is that part so of it's Ukraine? Not, it's, not, it's not part of... I mean, it's not entirely so. You would find right. speakers on both right. sides, and you would find there's, it's a much more mixed picture than that. But, but if we're speaking here uh, on the whole, and if you and you can almost find follow that of those line of you could almost follow the line of election results on both, and it broke down that way. So I said we so, should start so start at the at the end and work back. But let me ask you, with that line. Talk to, talk to us about the, the borders of Ukraine, which I, I think were created in the Soviet period, right? The, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist so Republic could, was uh, one of the let republics. Me, let, let's, <laughs> there we would have to go all the way back to 1991, and, yeah. and when the Soviet Union began to break apart. And obviously, uh, when it became clear that the Union could not hold, the center would not, could not hold, and that uh, a whole group of new independent states were going to come into existence. Not just Russia, but a number of states who right. either had never been independent states, such as Kazakhstan, right. or states that had, like Latvia, who had had an independent uh, past and were going to regain their, their independence. The question became, oh my God, how are we going to, how are both they and we, the international community, going to sort out the question of borders? Across 11 time zones, at least 15 different independent states, none of which had settled borders right. with their neighbors. And were we going to confront a situation in which uh, they were immediately, all of them, gonna, we were going to be, there was going to be a, a terrible ethnically based series of these conflicts from west to east across 11 time zones in Eurasia, complicated by the fact that there was a nuclear dimension to this because the Soviet nuclear arsenal was deployed not only in on the territory of Russia, but also on the territory of what became the independent states of Belarus, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. And we did not, we did not want to see, we in the United States and the Bush administration did not want to First see First Bush administration, First Bush, Bush 41, our hero. Did <laughs> did not want to see this become a, a, a series of bitter ethnic conflicts over borders, again, across 11 time zones, 
exacerbated greatly by the fact that all of a sudden these nuclear weapons were going to be dispersed in not one but four different independent countries. So to get to your, your question, the only way we could figure out how to, how to sort this out was to say, all right, as the price of the United States recognition of your independence and, and it, we will recognize the independence of these states as the borders of the then existing, that is prior to the breakup of the Soviet Union, the existing Soviet Union, Repu Union republics within the Soviet Union, right? So whatever was in the Russian Republic right. became the borders of Russia. This is like whatever was this is like African decolonization, where basically everybody said these borders are so messed up, but nobody wants to deal with them, so we're just going to accept the colonial borders at independence. And if you want us to recognize your independence, right. you will have to uh, accept uh, that. And so you you get very weird anomalies. Uh, I wish we could we had it, all your viewers would have a map right in front of them. But for instance, uh, there's the little enclave of Kaliningrad, right, which is part of Russia, right but sits on the other side, on the western side of the three Baltic states. And the reason right. why that is so is because it was part of the Russian Soviet Socialist, Soviet Socialist Republic, Republic within, within right. the USSR. You have, and, and this is a much less known and less understood uh, issue, you have the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, yeah, which is uh, almost entirely uh, Armenian, but yet sets enti sits entirely in, within in the borders of Azerbaijan. And, these, those two countries have been at war over the status of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh for the since 1991. Since 1991, since basically. 1991. And I don't know why so, you say that nobody knows about Nagorno-Karabakh. Of course, everybody knows about Nagorno-Karabakh. Two of the three of us knew all about it. <laughs> so, well, if you had, if we had any Armenians here, they uh, would know they about Nagorno-Karabakh Nagorno and and or any yeah. So, uh, there you have it. Now it worked in some cases. It worked to keep the peace in some cases, and it worked. Uh, didn't work in others. As I said, the Armenians and Azeris immediately went to war over Nagorno-Karabakh, but at least wars didn't break out across 11 time zones, and once we were able to negotiate the return of the nuclear warheads uh, from Belarus, Ukraine, Kazakhstan to Russia, the nuclear dimension of the, those kinds of conflicts began to uh, began to recede. So the borders of Ukraine are just a consequence of where they were as part of Exactly, the, and I know where you're going with this, which is the, the, the problem and the issue of, of Crimea. So uh, when independence came, uh, Crimea was, was a part of the Ukrainian Socialist Republic within the, uh, within the, uh, uh, the old Soviet Union. So the rule being the rule, that's where it, that's where it resided. Uh, for in terms of where the international boundary, the, the recognize, internationally recognized international boundary of, of Ukraine uh, would run. But Crimea has a long and deep history with Russians as well, and as a matter of fact, <clears throat> it was only in 1964 uh, when Khrushchev, the then uh, Russian uh, premier, uh, Soviet premier, uh, transferred the jurisdiction of Crimea from 
the Russian Republic to the Ukrainian Republic uh, as a, uh, a consequence of one of his uh, needing to garner the votes in the Politburo on some issue or another, I can't even remember what it was, of the, uh, of the Ukrainian leadership. So it didn't seem to matter then. Right. <laughs> right? Nobody was thinking about because breaking nobody, up the Soviet Union. Nobody was thinking that the Soviet Union was going to, it certainly didn't occur to Khrushchev that this might occur, that mm -hmm. this might happen at some point in the future, and that this might become an issue. Right. But uh, neither, neither did Khrushchev uh, consider that he would, but uh, was both, about to be overthrown. But, but, for, for, <laughs> but for both, yes. <laughs> but for both you Russians and Ukrainians, uh, if you will, uh, Crimea has, is sacred ground, uh, it, and for different reasons, uh, and for a variety of historical reasons, um, there are thousands of Russian war graves on Ukraine, on Crimea. Uh, the Crimean from War. From the Crimean War in the yeah. 1850s, and even bef and, and and even in before when they that, fought the, the Ottomans. Yes, from the period of the of Catherine's wars against the Ottomans to push them off the North Littoral of the Black Sea, and right. by the way. Uh, uh, it was uh, in the at the end of one of those wars, uh, uh, the uh, the Ottoman Empire ceded uh, Crimea uh, specifically and by treaty to the Russian Empire uh, in the same year that uh, that the British Empire granted the independence of the United States of America. Uh, there we are. Yeah. Very interesting. So uh, this has a long a long history. And, uh, Back to Zelensky. Yeah, so remember this divide, right? North, this sort the north-south line between west and east. Yes. Zelensky is a different cat in the sense uh, that he's the first Russian, the first Ukrainian politician uh, since at least 2004, and even before that, who in his electoral campaign won in every corner of Ukraine from west to east. Who? Across the whole of the country where voting actually took place. The only place it didn't take place voting was in the areas that are uh, the separatist enclaves of the uh, two, uh, two, provin uh, two provinces in eastern Ukraine, Luhansk and Donetsk, which are not now under Ukrainian Kiev's control. Kiev's control. Right, right. Wherever nor, voting, nor in Crimea. Right, and not right. in Crimea. Because the Russians have right. established their control exactly. over Crimea. Exactly. But everywhere else, West to east, across that divide, Zelensky won. He won in part because uh, he is not a typical Ukrainian politician. The Ukrainian people were fed up with their political class, right? And this is sounding familiar. Well, there, there is a certain echo here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, wait till we get to the TV part. Well, and decided to try something different, right? So uh, Zelensky is a. Um, is not a politician, not a government guy. He's an actor. He had a TV show, which amazing as it sounds, the format of the show was that by he was he was just a normal Joe, right? Yeah, who by some quirk of uh, you know, un, completely unforeseen and unforeseeable events, winds up as president of Ukraine. Right? <laughs> right. Well, that's exactly what happened in, in real life. I mean, he, 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 he. That was the premise of the show. Life imitates <laughs> art. Life imitates art. The show came to, to, came to be true. 
he won a masterful campaign on the basis of, uh, uh, look, let's pull our socks up, let's try to get going, let's try to deal with the issues of, uh, of political conflict and corruption and, and the, the erosion of, of uh, state capacity that have dogged us. Uh, and let's try to find, let's see if it might be possible to also negotiate our way out of this conflict in the East that has uh, embroiled us and the, Rus we, the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, and made our, all of our lives uh, so, so miserable. And his campaign uh, just swept to victory uh, over uh, Poroshenko, the old, uh, the, the then incumbent president who was a representative for good or ill or seen certainly as by the electorate as a yet another member of the, of the discredited Ukrainian uh, political uh, uh, Poroshenko was, he came to power as a result of kind of an anti-Russian Right. He came, he came. He came to. Uh, he came to power as a result of the so-called Maidan Revolution or Maidan Uprising. Uh, again, this this is going to get very complex for your listeners, but the, that's why they're listening, though. Uh, as a result of this constant back and forth that I talked about, swinging back and forth between the pro-Russian uh, uh, leadership mm. and the pro-Western leadership, uh, the. The president of Ukraine in that period uh, uh, was uh, a man named Yanukovych, who was from the pro-Soviet side, pro-Russian side. Uh, pro, yes, pro-Russian. Sorry, it slipped there. Yep, yep. Little, little. Slip, we uh, all make those slips. The, the pro-Russian, except uh, the youngsters who don't remember the Soviet yeah, Union. The, the pro, <laughs> he remembers only Russia. Yeah, right. right. They, Remember the Rocky movies, kind of. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you may remember the Soviet Union. Yeah. So. Uh, so Yanukovych uh, was, uh, for a time, uh, flirting with a closer relationship with the EU, including right. an EU association agreement right. through most of 2012 and 2013. He appeared on the verge of moving away from his former Soviet connections and moving into a more EU-centered uh, politics. Uh, but he decided in the end uh, that the EU was imposing too many conditions on that, and so he backed away from it. and and uh, reinvigorated his embrace of, uh, of Vladimir Putin. Whereas, whereas whereupon, uh, lots and lots of uh, Ukrainians uh, went to the, uh, to the square, the Maidan in Kiev, held out there in, in, in protests and demonstrations. One thing led to another, and finally Yanukovych was forced to flee. Whereupon Poroshenko, this politician that Zelensky just beat, uh, uh, was elected as the uh, First uh, as an interim and then as an elected uh, president, uh, but he too struggled uh, to deal with with uh, uh, Ukraine's problems of uh, declining state capacity, of, of corruption, of uh, and the war in the east, which was a, a, has been a huge uh, drain on, on on Ukraine. So Zelensky was able to say, "Look, let's let's put this behind us. Let's try to get a fresh start." Let's try to stop being, I'm against you. Let's try to be Ukrainians, and let's try to get a grip on our, our, our problems. When did the Russians intervene militarily in Ukraine? They, uh, they intervened in March, uh, uh, in March of uh, 2014. So this is... After Yanukovych fled, right. right, 
they intervened uh, first in uh, uh, to seize uh, Crimea, and in, in my in my view, I, I, I uh, it is my view that there had been uh, on the uh, on the shelves of the general staff uh, a plan to do precisely that for a long time, uh, because one of the one of the the, the issues, one of the issues uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and that throughout this entire period, was the status of the uh, fleet, uh, Black Sea Fleet anchorage right. in Sevastopol, right. and the terms and conditions under which the uh, the Russians would have continued to have access to that or control of the of the uh, fleet anchorage. So there. All, all during independent Ukraine from 1991, the Russian fleet was still and it would go the back. Black and, Sea fleet, it, fleet was still based at Sevastopol. Yes. Yeah. And 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 when the more pro-Russian uh, crowd uh, was in charge in Kiev, then all that went well, and yeah. and, and things yeah. yeah. But when the when the more Western, more EU-oriented crowd would be in the ascendancy, then they would get hit, Russia and Ukraine would get into a fight over this, and and would there'd be talk of ending the lease or of or curtailing it, and all of a sudden. Which gave the you know the general staff and uh, and, and 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 the Kremlin uh, you know the willies right mm -hmm. and uh, and so I think there was a I think in my own view there was a decision taken at the time well we're we're through with this and we have an opportunity here we're going to end it and we're going to going to reclaim Russia's um, historic rights in in Crimea as they as they saw it. Now the Crimean intervention was pretty direct, but the it intervention was, it was direct. It was quick and it was right. relatively blunt. Right, but the intervention in the other parts of Ukraine was then, more uh, uh, veiled so, and uh, so, little green men, supposedly. Well, right? no, there were lots of little green men deployed in Crimea. In Crimea as well. As well. These are the, so this, this wasn't is, Crime, the, the Crimean operation wasn't a uh, you know. A like, military like the Marines takeover. assaulting, right. Uh, right. you know, or, or D, a D-Day invasion right. or something. Like so, so no, all of these interventions were done, in essence, by Russians not wearing Russian uniforms. And in, in uh, they were an application of what has come to be known as the Russian doctrine of hybrid warfare, right? Of uh, a whole range of uh, less than overt military operations, but uh, a range of political, military, psychological, informational uh, actions that taken together uh, can, can really uh, cause, cause trouble for a, uh, a weaker or even a stronger adversary, mm. right? Um, and Ukraine was much of the weaker adversary. Right. So uh, once, once the, it didn't take long, it took less than a month or to, you know, to wrap up the Crimea and then uh, action and then to legitimize it by an, a vote, a vote, a referendum, a referendum, right. which was uh, very, uh, quite, you know, held under very questionable circumstances. And then a vote in the Russian uh, uh, Supreme, uh, the right. Russian uh, in, parliament, in the parliament, right, to, uh, to go ahead with annexation. So the referendum was basically a question, do you want to be annexed or not? Oh, yes, we yeah, want to yeah. be annexed. Then the Russian parliament would said, okay, if you want that, we'll, yeah. So all this was prearranged, pre-cooked, but it was done quickly, right? So the then, Russian... Then, the, yeah. then, then began, began, uh, became, or began the inner, the inner so-called, uh, and I think in reality, uh, the Russian intervention in 
the easternmost provinces of Ukraine itself, right? Okay. Crimea is Ukraine itself too, but I'm, I'm talking about right. the easternmost provinces uh, that are uh, called the Donbass. The Donbass, right. Yeah, the listeners they, should know that Crimea is practically an island in the Black Sea. It's, it's connected to the mainland by a, by a peninsula. By a peninsula. But now we're talking about the Donbass region, which is kind of part of, of, of Ukraine proper, as it were, yeah. not, not, not stuck out yeah, in the middle yeah, of two, the Black Sea. Uh, two provinces, uh, parts of Donetsk uh, province and Lukansk, uh, came under uh, separatist control. People saying, we, wanna, we want out of uh, the rule of Kiev. We want to establish our own uh, local uh, government and we might in, at some point uh, also envisage the possibility of linking to Russia right or being annexed by Russia as had been the case with, with just finished with Crimea well this touched off a, uh, a, a conflict between the Russian uh, between uh, the Ukrainians trying to retain sovereignty over their own territory and control over their own border eastern border and uh, the separatists, who immediately uh, came, uh, who came into being as a result of Russian intervention across the Ukrainian border. Essentially, the Ukrainians lost control over the internationally recognized boundary between Russia and Ukraine, as it applies to those two eastern provinces. Right. So, and so, so Russian, Russian forces could come back and forth across that bay. The Kiev lost control over the border. Right. So it's it's essentially porous. There is no de facto de jure, the border still runs where it ran. But de facto the border has been lost between Russia and the area of these two uh, irredentist or uh, separatist. separatist enclaves. So uh, from, a, from the Kiev perspective, this is an international war in that the Russians are basically fighting the legitimate government of Ukraine over these two provinces, whereas the Russian perspective is this is a civil war within right. Ukraine, right. and perhaps some sympathetic people in Russia might be occasionally helping them a bit. Yes, but uh, I, I guess that characterizes fairly accurately the vision, you know, the the, the public position of the two sides. But in reality, the Russians have been uh, extensively intervening in the mm -hmm. conflict uh, ever since it, uh, it broke out in 2014. Uh, they have uh, Russian uh, regular forces, uh, albeit in, in Mufti, you right. know, have uh, intervened. They have provided uh, weapons and, uh, and, and support and uh, uh, sometimes very sophisticated weapons like the uh, Anti-aircraft battery that shot down the Malaysian, uh, right? Or was it a Malaysian airline? Malaysian or airliner, a Dutch I airline. Think. Yeah, but Malaysian. it was headed to, uh, to, uh, to 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 Amsterdam. It was, it was in Rate to Amsterdam. right Amsterdam. Yeah, the Malaysian airliner, which lost some uh, 250 uh, people, uh, innocent uh, air passengers. So it's been mess. It's been a grind. It's been an inconclusive and uh, uh, war that has uh, claimed uh, thousands and thousands of not only military but combatants but civilian lives because those, that, those, that battle line, that line of contact 
runs right through heavily populated uh, civilian areas. Mm -hmm. And so when you open up an artillery barrage or, or a, you know, start sending rockets back and forth, you're going to kill civilians as well as combatants, and uh, that has happened with, with great regularity. And where does that leave us with, uh, so Zelensky comes into power, has he So Zelensky better? came into power, and he came in with the notion of, of as I say, pulling, trying to pull their socks up domestically, but also trying And this to, is very recently, 2018, Yeah, right? it's yeah. April of, April April, of this year. Yeah. He won the presidency. And then his April, party— April 2019. Yes. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and then won a sweeping victory in the parliament in the, over the summer. Uh-huh. Right? So he's... Now, uh, before we get back to Zelensky, there was, been a, there was a long running debate about in the United States about what to do about all of this. Right? Right. Uh, it, it has been, up to now, an issue on which Republicans and Democrats could agree that something should be done, that the United States should oppose, right, uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea, uh, and and that the United States should help Ukraine uh, to to resolve this issue in the East. That the Russians should not be allowed just to just to uh, you know, to uh, foment uh, this uh, uh, separatist uh, uh, violence and, and this assertion of, of uh, independence, both of which would, would have violated Ukraine's sovereignty and, 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 in, and territorial integrity, right? Both the loss of Crimea and the loss of the, these provinces, uh, parts of these two provinces in the east. So the debate turned around what to do, right? Well, one thing that was agreed by everybody is that we should apply sanctions on Russia, and that has been in place now since 2014. Sweeping sanctions on, on the Russian economy, uh, and they have grown progressively more severe over time. And they have been, to some degree or another, also adopted by others, especially the European Union. Uh, not exactly the same set of sanctions because the Union operates in a different way than the United States operates, but the general principle is that the Russians should pay a price for this and, and that they should pay an increasing price until they stop it, right? Um, in the United States, there was a, a long debate about whether American assistance should include military assistance. Uh, some favored it, some did not. Uh, the Obama administration pro decided to provide some military assistance, but military assistance that did not involve lethal, uh, that <laughs> we is do, things that actually go bang. We, right? do, we do split hairs, don't so, we? <laughs> so we're talking about, uh, you know, c communications, Medical services, right. uh, all kinds of things. Uh, night vision goggles. Night vision, yes, things like that. Uh, but not bang, boom, right, right. right. Uh, but this was hotly debated about whether or not this should be done. Then, when the Trump, when the Trump administration came in, uh, the decision was taken that yes, we will cross that line. We will provide lethal assistance uh, to to Ukraine. 
and and so that decision was made, and the first transfers of uh, U.S. US made military uh, lethal equipment, especially uh, in the form of these uh, Javelin uh, anti-tank missiles, because the Russians had a big advantage and the separatists had a big advantage in armor uh, over the Ukrainian side. And so the idea was, well, let's redress the battlefield balance a little bit by giving the Ukrainians a way to deal with the Russian armor. So, uh, yes. So this was under the Trump administration. Yes. Which kind of goes against the general notion that Trump is, you know, more pro pro Russian. Well, uh, I mean that al that also is a very complex subject. But suffice it to say that there were there were and are people uh, in the Trump administration who 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 saw uh, crossing that line into lethal assistance as a. Among them were uh, the then Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then uh, National Security Advisor, National, uh, then, then National Security Advisor H. R. McMaster, and others, who said, "Okay, we should, you know, we got, we should do this," and and that decision was made. And here again, here again, and I want to I want to stress and emphasize this. Uh, while there had been de you know, debate over what particular step should be taken, what there was never a debate over, Republicans and Democrats, there was a broad consensus that the United States should be in the corner of Ukraine, right? The, the United States should be a strong supporter of Ukraine, of its independence, of its territorial integrity. Um, and, uh, and so these, you know, Congressional provisions for assistance to Ukraine passed with overwhelming majorities, Republicans and Democrats together. This, uh, so here you have this convergence of a, a policy uh, on which one of very few that Republicans and Democrats, a bipartisan right, policy, and, and an opening, an opening with Zelensky's election to actually get behind Ukraine. A reformist president. A reformist president with a mandate. Clean up corruption. And with a mandate running from east to west across right. every place that could vote in Ukraine. For the in first part, time, yeah. for the first time in, that anybody could vote. Since, since Ukrainian independence in 91. Or, or at least since 2004. At least since 2004. And then we just muffed it. Yeah. We blew it entirely. So, uh, so tell we us have, a little about that. We have, we have managed in the, in the course of a few weeks' time to undercut Zelensky, to isolate him further, uh, to uh, to drag Ukraine into the partisan, the American partisan debate, right? To drag its its international reputation through the through the through the sewer, and to leave leave Zelensky uh, without his without his most. 
consistent and ardent supporter. Without a superpower ally. At just, at just the time, at just the time when he needs it most. Because, yes, it's true that Zelensky won a, a, a huge and resounding election. Yes, it's true he's a new face and an outsider. Yes, it's true he has sweeping support. But he also faces a foul wave of expectations from people who voted him into office on the notion that here's a guy who can get something done. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't. What comes next? He, he, his popularity is going to drop like a bowling ball off the edge of that table unless, unless he can deliver on some of those expectations. And we have just, we have just upped the, the, uh, the degree of difficulty by exponentially, by so, allowing this to happen, by allowing Ukraine to be dragged into our domestic politics in this fashion. So I, I don't want to get us into impeachment. I don't want to get into but, it either, but that's the fact. In the yes. But the aid then did come. And, and has it had an effect on the, on the ground? I know it's, it's, it's still early days, but that the aid was released. It did get to, to Kiev. Yeah, there's a, uh, it, it has been delivered. I, 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 uh, I think this, it has had a much greater positive impact on Ukrainian morale. Uh, and uh, less so in the, the effectiveness of Ukrainian battlefield performance. Um, but, there, but there has been an upward tick on, on that dimension, on Ukrainian battlefield performance, which has been going on now for a year or so. That is, the Ukrainian army has become, Ukrainian forces have become increasingly more effective they, that line of contact that we're talking about has largely uh, stabilized. There were periods in which the separatists appeared like they were going to run the Ukrainians off the map. And for a while, the Ukrainians also had, um, you know, it's gone back and yes. forth. But, but uh, I would say that um, they've done better over the past year or so, and part of that has been the, the encouragement, the, uh, the, the sense of support uh, that the transfers of the military system. Now, if, if you're asking me, you know, how many Russian armored vehicles have been knocked out by these javelins? Uh, I don't know. And and I've even seen reports that the javelins have not actually been deployed to the front lines. Uh, that they're being very careful and cautious about how they handle it. Right. Don't want to lose them. Yeah. Don't want to lose them. And also, if there's a chance, if there's a chance that Zelensky can cut a deal with Putin, uh, that would, you know. Uh, make some sense. Uh, well, for instance, he is making the effort. Uh, just in the last uh, couple of days, he's been meeting with uh, with Putin in Paris. Right. This is under the us. To under some extent, we're, we're we're already turning to our audience questions because the one of the audience questions that was given to us is the question about what was going on in Paris in these talks well, between Putin. Zelensky, Macron, and Angela Merkel. First of all, this is not in itself new. Hmm. Uh, this forum had... What? Louder? Uh, 
this forum has been <laughs> operating uh, for quite some time. As a matter of fact, uh, all the way back uh, in, uh, in, in 2014, uh, uh, or 2015, right? there was reached uh, the so-called uh, Minsk agreement among these parties, right? The Russians, Ukrainians, the... The French and, and the Germans? And the French and Germans. Were we there? Uh, the United States was much more involved in the negotiations than we are now. Okay. We have... The hands off uh, now. Hands off. We don't... Uh, we have other things we're negotiating with the Ukrainians. <laughs> yeah. No, no, we won't get any further into that. We're just dancing around. Yeah. Dancing around. Yeah. No, uh, look. Uh, when when Putin when Putin and uh, uh, and uh, and Trump uh, President Trump met for the first time uh, in uh, June of uh, 2017, uh, Putin Putin says, "Well, you know, we really ought to have a a dialogue on this. We really ought to get together and see what we can." So the president looks at Tillerson, Tillerson looks at the president, and, and, and out of that came the appointment of an old friend of mine, uh, Kurt Volker, as the special representative for Ukraine, right, who would try to uh, engage with Putin's representative and see whether right. So yes, the, the U.S. for a time was fairly heavily engaged in Ukraine diplomacy with Russia trying to see whether there might be some way in which, you know, a, a settlement could be arranged. Well, getting back to this, to the forum again, uh, out of this, out of these talks with the Europeans and the Ukrainians and Russians uh, came what was so, the so-called Minsk Agreement, which uh, had a number of provisions. It had, a mil it had military provisions, so for a disengagement of these heavy forces mm -hmm. along the line of contact, Right, so that you could get down the level of violence, you could stop killing so many civilians, and you could also, uh, uh, you know, reduce combatant you know, deaths. Pry the forces apart. That would be the first order of business. The second and later order of business, political order of business, would be to say a kind of grand trade here that, on the one hand, Ukraine would pass a set of, of measures through the Ukrainian parliament, which would make a fairly wide grant of autonomy to these provinces in the east that were the separatist provinces, Lukansk and Donetsk, right? And in return for that, would the, the, the de jure international border of Russia and Ukraine would be restored to Kiev's control. The Ukrainians basically recognize that Crimea is lost, no, not on the table for no. them? No, but the Minsk Accord did not deal with Crimea. With Crimea. It dealt only with only the conflict with, in right. the east. Right. The Ukrainian position on Crimea is, Crimea is part of Ukraine, we should get it back. The Russian position is, Russia's, Crimea is part of, U, of Russia, Russia and case over. Yeah. So you have two opposing positions, but they're not just, they don't discuss that because there's nothing to discuss. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, the problem with this Minsk Accord was that it was never implemented. The forces were never preased apart along the yeah. line of contact. 
the Ukrainian parliament could never pass, pass ne the, Poroshenko the, the, could never get through a pa this the package autonomy. of autonomy measures, yeah. right? And the Russians could, ne and could never be brought to agree to a set of measures to restore Ukrainian control over the de, or the de jure uh, international border in the east. So that's where it's at. And back and forth, you're, you go first, no, we'll go first, no, you go first, no. And the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, deployed a number of observers along the line of contact oh, okay. to, you know, to see whether this was actually this disengagement of forces actually was going to take place, or did take place. In some cases, there were some desolatory efforts to pull back, but on the whole, it it never took hold. Then those forces are still in juxtaposition, close juxtaposition to each other, still. Uh, you know, engaging in these artillery and rocket barrages, still killing each other and killing civilians as collateral damage to these, you know, and so on. So this meeting now is a fresh attempt by Macron, by, by uh, Merkel, uh, and certainly by Zelensky and Putin, right, to, to revisit this, and see if you can put some real life into that, into these arrangements and get something. Now, what is different about this is this is Zelensky's first go-around. Right. Remember, he was only elected in April, and this is his first try at this face-to-face -face, uh, diplomacy uh, with, with Putin. That's another reason why it is so unfortunate, right, what has happened, because there's no American there, there's no... Uh, the sense of support that Ukrainians and Zelensky have, have felt from the United States has basically been just within a few weeks' time dissipated. Right. And now it's going to get even worse because what I fear happening is that Ukraine itself is going to become a, a dividing point in our own domestic politics. That one side is going to say we're pro-Ukraine, the other side is we're going to say we're not, we're or we're against them because they are the ones who caused this calamity to call to fall upon. Again, I, I, I don't want to get over. Any... <laughs> I use that impeachment word. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that word. So, so why does Putin come to the table in Paris? Does he because think that that that, that Zelensky's weak and maybe he can uh, take advantage? It, uh, part of it is is that uh, Putin believes that he's got a leg up, that he has got uh, Zelensky uh, cornered, right? That he needs this, he needs it desperately. Remember that bow wave of expectation? Yep. That, that he is without his principal supporter all of a sudden, that he's young and experienced. I mean, let's remember, Putin's on his fourth American president. He's been around since 1999. He knows this brief like in the back of his hand. For good or ill, he is the, he is the world's most experienced you know, leader. Of a, he's been around in terms of head of one of the major powers for the longest time of any of them. And he knows how to play a hand. Yeah. And Zelensky is completely untested in this arena. And so Putin figures, hey, 
maybe I can take him to the cleaners. Why? Why? Why and does not only that, and not only that, if he could get an agreement favorable to Russia, then Putin could turn around and say to the Europeans, who are sitting at the same table, "Hey, isn't it time to lift these sanctions?" Right. Yes, because I'm here, you, we all agreed, let's lift the sanctions. And forget what the Americans are going to do. They're so feckless, they're, they're, they're yeah. falling over themselves. And they're not a factor anymore anyway. What, what, what so, is, that's, so that's his reasons. What do Macron and Merkel have? Macron and Merkel have decided that nobody else is going to do this. That the United States is uh, out to lunch, or the combat, right? Yes. I mean, we, uh, well, I mean, that's a nice way of saying out to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that that the United States is so preoccupied with its uh, domestic turmoil, and is uh, in the and in, in the current circumstances couldn't give a damn less about this. Yeah. So if that's the case, then, all right, we got to do it, or else it's not going to get done. Right. And by the way, this is a way of saying uh, uh, for uh, people like Merkel and and uh, and especially Macron to say, look, maybe we don't need the United States. Right. Maybe we can get this done on our own. And the United States isn't coming riding over the hill like the U.S. cavalry anytime soon. So what are we going to do? Sit around and on our hands and do nothing? Let's at least try to do something to do something, and see if we can make this work. So we're coming close to the end of our hour, which is what we usually try to do. We had one kind of pre-question from the audience, but are there any other questions from the audience? The gentleman's question is 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 very well taken. What does this mean? I mean, do. You, at least one headline says, okay, they've agreed to a ceasefire. Right. Well, they agreed to a ceasefire in 2015. Right. The question is, will they actually do it? It, it seemed like Putin has the upper hand. Is he actually willing to compromise on anything? Right. It remains, that's what remains to be seen. Uh, if, if we could get a ceasefire all along that line of contact, if we could at least get the military provisions of the Minsk Accord that would separate the forces done, then you'd have to tackle the broader political trade-off of autonomy for a restoration of the border. Right. Uh, but at least that would be a start. Well, it'd be really interesting too to see maybe Macron and Merkel are able to to come up against Putin and negotiate favorably. Maybe they don't need the Americans at the table. But can they guarantee? Can they guarantee uh, implementation of the deal? And that's, I think, the problem for for the Europeans being the, the, the folks at the, the, the third parties at so the table, as opposed to the Europeans and the U.S., it, it's a lot easier for Putin to ignore them. Look, the, uh, the Europeans uh, can't guarantee anything on this. All, they, all they're doing is providing a table and a, and a setting and, a, yeah. and an invitation and a place, and, right? Uh, uh, the only people who can make this work are, the, are Russians and Ukrainians. Does, and and Zelensky, Zelensky would very much like to have a ceasefire, right? Because he could deliver he on could that, deliver something. on something that he had promised the Ukrainian people in the election. 
he, he said, I will try to get a, an end to the conflict and by the way, I think I can do it. And if he could get even that, just a ceasefire in place, uh, I think that would, that would help him a lot. Yeah. Hopefully he's, more, hopefully he's more successful than, uh, you know, Trump negotiating North Korea. Well, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> and on, on that happy note, I think that we've come to the end of our time. I'd like to thank the crowds who, who came <laughs> to attend today's podcast. Masses of Ukrainians and Russians out there who came to listen to us. And, and to thank uh, Larry Knapper, our, our, our friend and colleague, for coming down and, and spending his time on the podcast. I, I, I predict this might be the most downloaded podcast because Ukraine is a hot topic and people want to know about it. So, Larry, thanks very much. Uh, thank you much. guys uh, for staying clear of uh, the, uh, the I word. As best we could. <laughs> I appreciate that. As best we could. And uh, also, thank you for the invitation to come down and uncork with you. And I would be happy to do it again at some point. That's fabulous. Let's do it again. Let's do that. Thanks, Larry. All right. And happy... Uh, Happy New Year. Happy, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year's to everybody. We're going to we'll be back in your in your feed uh, in uh, January of 2020. Yep. And keep an eye out. We'll be uh, hopefully throwing a couple mediums at you in the spring. So uh, happy New Year and we will see you in 2020. 2020.